Despotic governments can stand moral force until the cows come home. What they fear is physical force. Or is it? Welcome to Swing Vote, the show where we present the facts and you draw the conclusions. My name is Jason. Today I'm joined by my colleagues Harry, Harry, Andrew, and special guest, Holly. Now, before we begin, let's go over some basics. The concept of a world policeman emerged in the late 19th century with the British Empire and its Pax Britannica. Before then, no power had either the strength or the will to project power on a global scale. The Empire, however, was less concerned with tyrants than it was with maintaining the balance of power. After all, if the British ever claimed to be protecting morality and wise rule, their own subjects would be the first ones laughing. With the end of the Second World War and the end of British hegemony, we truly see the beginning of our modern obsession with regime change. Both the United States and the Soviet Union engaged in crusades that, while primarily motivated by a desire to stem the other's influence, were also driven by deep ideological convictions. The two superpowers played a delicate game of chess on a global scale with puppet states and insurgent groups. With every move, the United States became ever more convinced that it was destined to take on the mantle of world placement from its former colonial master to forever do battle against all who opposed its principles. Even when its greatest opponent fell in 1991, America continued waging war against Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, among many other states. America's half-century at war has produced notable results. South Korea is a thriving nation of 50 million people with the 11th largest economy in the world. Grenada was saved from the ravages of a communist dictatorship. Germany and Japan, if one considers World War II itself to be a war for regime change, are both prosperous nations with strong democratic governments today. Failures, however, are equally significant in scope. Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq. Millions died for one oppressive government to be replaced by another, and the horrors left a permanent scar on both the American psyche and those of hundreds of millions more. We installed autocrats in Guatemala, Chile, and Iran, whose draconian rule still haunts them to this day. So, big question. Should the U.S. intervene in other nations for the purpose of replacing their rulers? Actually, before we start off, I gotta say something. Hold up. Mark, keep your conversation quieter. Okay, go. Alright. So, I suppose I'm starting off. As, as usual. usual. Alright. I think one of the first things we need to understand is that these, in the, these invasions are very rarely in the interests of either the American people or the people who are being subject to these invasions. I mean... One, we clearly see that there are perverse incentives for America due to the military-industrial complex to use military force. I think we can clearly state that the American policy, in essentially post-World War II, has largely been one of not nation-building, but simply of crushing authoritarian regimes and ignoring the fact that when we leave, there's a new authoritarian regime if we don't actively prop up a new one. So I think it should be made clear that one of the major flaws of American interventionism is that it's not built on a humanitarian perspective. There's many humanitarian justifications and all that. But the truth is, the underlying truth is that this is not a this is not an operation built for the good of humanity. This is not an operation built for the good of the American people. And it's not an operation built for the good of the people who are whose country is being intervened in. This is built by moneyed interests 
to protect their interests. There's a reason why U.S. intervention has produced relatively few results, and the one war we consistently point to as a success, nation-building post-World War II, required unprecedented spending and investment in those countries, as well as a willingness to fight a war for ideological reasons without the military, without the robust military-industrial complex we see today. I think that the example of World War II is actually a, a, in some cases, the best case scenario because the U.S. did not go into the reconstruction with ulterior motives because what else was there to gain? And Germany, France, and Japan were inevitably going to fall under the United States' fear as they were devastated by war and the United States was, and they were ideologically opposed to the Soviet Union. And Obviously, the uh, military-industrial complex at that point was not the gargantuan we see today. And essentially, the Marshall Plan and associated reconstruction of Europe was perhaps one of the rare examples of a actual noble exercise in nation-building and, and legitimately aiding other nations. They haven't done so since. In, none, in all of our other projects, the goal has never been to restore democracy or to um, achieve some lasting peace. It's to, perhaps it's not as dire as the conspiracy theory that America simply seeks to perpetuate for eternal war. But certainly the motives have mostly been commercial and in terms of almost a national chauvinism. But one must ask that even if the intervention was done uh, from a deeply altruistic place, would it would it even be a good point then? I mean, America is still a foreign power, and it has consistently shown an inability to respond effectively to problems in regions it's intervening in. The, I think there's a re there's a very reasonable point, which is that America certainly is never going to succeed in its interventions as long as its motives are commercial. But even without commercial motives, America is a superpower built on it with a deep sense of national pride that blinds it to the problems of other nations. America doesn't understand the problems of Iraqi civilians, and while commercial interests stop it from making an attempt, even if it did make an attempt, who's to say that American, intervention, American interventionists know what Iraqis want better than Iraqis do? So I think we can clearly say that American intervention isn't so much to protect democracy, but to apply America to other countries. And one wonders that even if this is done for the supposed, for the quote-unquote right reasons, if this is a feasible way to build any kind of stable country or ensure any kind of prosperity. Well, I don't think necessarily it's as... Well, certainly American... Um, there is American, uh, certainly American pride and yeah, much uh, benign... Uh, the, uh, the much malign theory of American exceptionalism, there has been considerable harm done. But I don't think... Interventionism is necessarily a completely flawed idea. We have I mean, Russia it's a to... deeply flawed idea. It's just whether you can make it work. I mean, interventionism yeah. has rarely worked with overwhelming investment. I mean, the Marshall Plan is a good example of where we basically spent our way out of our complete inability to understand the problems of Europeans. We understood that their economy was bad, and we fixed that by spending ungodly sums of money. The problem is getting the American people to back <laughs> investments in a reason we have long decried to be essentially um, well, terrorists have condemned over decades of propaganda uh, the the residents of um, 
Western Asia to the point that Arab, the very designation of an ethnic group, has become a slur in the United States. You have to solve that and consider perhaps even a 10-20 year plan to construct any country we ever plan on invading with dedicated field studies and extensive research before we think about doing anything. Harry Otherwise, Wong, we just throw away on the floor. Okay, um, I think a thing that we have to uh, look at is an example of a successful U.S. intervention. And looking through that, I think the common theme is, as you mentioned before, the U.S. is surprisingly ignorant, well, actually not very surprisingly ignorant of the situation of the nations in which they intervene. Therefore, U.S. intervention sh should be a tool to aid uh to aid local leaders in a case where it's clear there's there would be a clear successor to the current regime that is widely supported by the populace. For example, uh, we can look at the example of Panama uh, during Operation Just Cause. The 1989 uh, elections gave the opposition candidate an overwhelming landslide. Noriega uh, uh, invalidated the results of the election, and so there was a clear successor to Noriega, and all the U.S. had to do was depose Noriega, and it didn't have to participate in nation building and all that stuff. So I think if we are going to use interventionism, it has to be very, very limited. We should not participate in something like nation building or stuff like that, because that is far too hard, and, and it's used more than often than not. It just results in a... You're saying... Essentially, that the conditions for intervention is the rightful prince scenario, in which a heir for, for, uh, to the seat of power is there. He has been denied his rightful position, or perhaps been seized by the government. You're saying that's your condition for intervention. How about you? Well, slightly expanded. Well, okay. um, so, so, so my opinion is, if, if we look at um you know, their relationship in uh, Yugoslavia, between the war between uh, Serbia and Bosnia. And if, if you look at that conflict, th there really was an, almost a necessity to intervene because, you know, there were actual ethnic cleansing and concentration camps in, in the war, and that was, that was an awful thing that should be avoided at all costs. And because... United States is this it's a, somewhat of a beacon of democracy and individual rights. It is almost our duty to protect those who are being murdered so 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 with such malice and evil that it's all, how can the United States claim to be such a uh, wonderful country when they cannot stop such awful things? So it really depends on the circumstances. Obviously, I don't think anyone here would agree that intervening country for just for corporate greed it's obviously not a great idea but if we we need to really look at other examples too because there there's more about interventionism than just money it's also people i'm glad you brought up yugoslavia because i think it's an interesting example of where we can clearly say that the intervention was well-intentioned however several uh reviews of what occurred in yugoslavia have generally concluded that u.n u.s-backed airstrikes did little to effectively change things indeed it was the Bosnian offensive, which which turned the, so, uh, the Serbian army's control from 70% to 45% of occupied land, that drove uh, Milosevic to the table. And moreover, that the only immediate result of the airstrikes 
was an intensification of um, war crimes on both sides. That's not to say that intervention can never work, but that it's an interesting example of Yugoslavia, where I think we can all agree that the U.S. has some sort of some level of a duty to intervene. But the way the U.S. intervened was remarkably ineffective, and right. can largely can, the only direct result can be that can be seen is war crimes. So I think we can clearly see that even well intentioned, um, these interventions don't necessarily work. So I think this is this is the question I would pose to you, Jason. You essentially pose a situation in which America uh, essentially is willing to enter a an intervention period uh, of nation building with altruistic um, intentions. This is a very interesting leap, but let's say we make this leap. Who's to say America makes the right decision? Who's to say America doesn't support the rifle prince or something like that with airstrikes that alienate the populace and do more damage, further intensifying civil divisions oh, and doing nothing one. to generally change the situation? Step this one. is an important question. I ask you, how can you guarantee that the U.S. is going to use the right tools for every different country? That's a very, that's a big leap. It's a big ask of the U.S. and U.S. policymakers, especially considering the fact that, let's not forget, U.S. policymakers are consistently pretty incompetent. I mean, Rarely are policymakers the best sure. of the country, but the U.S. is so bought by corporate interests, and I, I can't imagine a situation in which the U.S. would be able to make a reasoned decision, and policymakers would make the right decision. Well, I think that there, yes, you, you do point out some of the significant flaws in a U.S. intervention, but I propose, I, well, I bring, I would like to propose that that is not necessarily the case. What has happened in the past is that Policymakers have taken charge because they needed, you know, a war. They needed that spirit of American on a democratic crusade in order to win votes or get money for the military-industrial complex. Does that situation change in your hypothetical scenario? Are you removing American democracy to ensure leader stability so that they won't do things for elections? Again, allow me to further expound. Well, that, you presented a very second, interesting hypothetical, but then you didn't. Like, second, does your plan stop that? second component of my plan is an in-depth study taking perhaps uh, taking years to study the situation on the ground. I'm wait, assuming do the that... the, wait, do the people on the ground have a, have years to wait? I mean, if it's ethnic cleansing in Yugoslavia, you're just going to say, oh yeah, sure, I mean, the coast of our Albanians, you know, sure they're being slaughtered on mass and being tossed into mass graves, but, you know, in a few years we'll come around with our study and we'll conclude that maybe we should do something about that. These people often don't have years, do they? Are we discussing regime change, or are we discussing the prevention of genocide? Well, regime change can include the prevention of genocide. I mean, well, if, if you if took you years, did. if you allowed Norega to entrench for five years while you surveyed the situation, if, that's a very the, different intervention than if, if you move in quickly in the immediate aftermath of an, of an overturned election. If the immediate goal is, if the immediate goal is to prevent a very likely ethnic cleansing by U.S. government conclusions, then the the game plan changes entirely. My well, scenario was assuming that you have an established oppressive regime and that you needed that had possibly decades to cement its power. Now, with the genocide case, I think any U.S. government intervention in such an unstable scenario would be inherently a poor decision. My best proposal would be the immediate evacuation of all vulnerable populations. But we're literally just going to ship all the coasts of our Albanians out of well, well, the country? Uh, Right, but I would also, oh, adding on to that, I was also, uh, a big point I wanted to make is that it really doesn't take that long for the United States to conduct uh, whatever research, considering all their uh, connections that they have. I mean, it's, you know, it, there, there's so much, there, we have such a vast resource network that 
it's an intelligence network that it really doesn't take that long to find out. It's a matter of what we choose to do with that information. I'd like to run with what Ollie said, because I would like to point out that, I mean, it's worth saying. Oh, go ahead, Ollie. No, I didn't say anything. I think it was Harry. No, go ahead. We need to accept input. No, no, wait, wait, Harry was saying something. I was talking over him. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I'd counter that, Ollie, with the fact is, empirically, the U.S. has made a hash of nation building over and over and over. So clearly, this phase of research is either the U.S. is just being incompetent and not placing sufficient emphasis on researching nation building, or as I think is more likely, nation building is far more complex, especially a place like Yugoslavia, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. where there's so much ethnic intersection. Right, right, right. I'm just saying that it's very easy for us to find out information about what's going on in the country. It's not oh. easy to choose what we do with that information. That's, that's right, where the, the big decision-making is. I want to run with the matter is, is that if there is an ethnic genocide going on in a country, it's very likely that we'll know about it. It doesn't take that long. I mean, it doesn't take a few years to realize, oh, wait, do we need to research this? Do we need to make sure that people are actually being slaughtered in this country? No, 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 we don't. We know that, that what's happening. And it, we have to make a quicker response time. I'd also like to add on that Jason's plan is built on at least the idea that, you know, if we give policymakers, if we get, if we make, if we spend years building reason studies, policymakers will use them. But I'd argue that it's not so much a lack of reasonable information available to policymakers, but a policymakers' active refusal to use them. I mean, let's say we spend years understanding implicitly, we know to a T how to affect an extremely effective regime change, but it might include, I don't know, encouraging that country to advocate for an economic policy that works against American interests. Who's to say policymakers are willing to do that? Right. What if it's a little here's, bit more expensive? What do you guarantee? The, what plan? Well, how does your plan guarantee that not only will we have good information, but that policymakers will use that information the way it's supposed to be used? Here's, here's the point I'm establishing, is that the U.S. government has to add, as it did after the um, the end of World War II, in an almost or entirely altruistic sense, because otherwise any... Ultra, any, any other motive inherently corrupts the exercise. Without a true dedication, free of political interest and at least major commercial contributions, only then a true state government can establish. Yeah, exactly. But how's that going to happen? Your plan is built on an America that does not exist. So explain to me how that's going to happen. Well, you you, you, on. Beyond that, you don't have to explain how that's going to happen. What you have to explain is, right now, what do we do? Let's say it doesn't get better at all. What do we do right now? What's our policy today? You even admitted that basically U.S. intervention in the Middle East is poisoned because of anti-Arab rhetoric. Well, you said we uh, it'll take several decades to remove that rhetoric. So do we spend 10 years on an anti-racism campaign and then we're ready to intervene? I mean, do we have to do this everywhere? I'm not saying that there's not a lot of anti-prejudice. There's a lot of racism. But you're essentially asking the U.S., to be a very different country from where it is. And I have to ask, how much fiat do you want for your plan? Because it seems like it's an uh, ever-increasing, you know, amount. The thing is, as the, Euro, the as the U.S. stands today, intervention is simply not a reality. Uh, what I'm assuming is that the American people and their representatives in the United States government have an interest in seeing prosperity in the other nations of the world. So America is sure. not racist and not bought by commercial interests. We have to make sure that, you know, so let me we just... have to make sure we have to make sure that Jack in Alabama 
and Sioux in New York both care about what's going on in, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, wherever it may be. So, so, so what I'm trying, so what you're saying is, correct me if I'm wrong, of course, is that because right now is broken, we shouldn't intervene. And is, is that, is, well, is, is, what, is I'm, that what I'm saying is that first we must, we must make a concerted effort to challenge the institutional prejudice we have built. Policies, I don't, right, right, right. I want policies. So, I mean, that's great, but I want policies. So, Jason, how are you going well, to, are you going to fight racism? Yeah, well, well even, even beyond that, like you said, it's not really working right now. So let's say somewhere in, I don't know, let's just some made up country, right? Let's say in a hypothetical country, there is well, a don't even, cleansing we, event right now. We don't even because need to policy use, we, is broken. We don't even need to use a hypothetical. There are two going on right now, one in Yemen and the other in Sudan. Okay, let's just let's, let's pick Yemen then. What do we do? Because oh, we're, yeah. we're broken right now. Do we do we still intervene well, because we're broken, the, or do we, or thing we is, do we choose not to? The thing is, the genocide in Yemen is perfectly avoidable. If, so that, therefore and and and, and actually, that. and actually, the genocide in Yemen right now is currently immediately stoppable if the U.S. withdraws military support from the Middle East, uh, from Saudi Arabia. The question is, will the U.S. ever withdraw military support from Saudi Arabia? We need that oil. That's not another right. point. Not only oil, but oh, go ahead. Uh, that's another point. Is uh, the U.S. is not going to ever do an intervention that is completely altruistic. That, nor is any. Oh, idea. sure, but that's impossible. I, I, I completely, I completely agree. I think... But, but my scenario. But again, I'm proposing the you know, what I would call the Marshall Plan, utmost scenario where, is where America already had a good, good deal of knowledge from British reports and. Well, post-war German reports about the scenario down on the ground, an implicit understanding of conflicts in that region, centuries of experience, and a genuine will, though minorly motivated by commercial and geopolitical interests. Minorly, they, in many ways, they, the Marshall Plan was explicitly sold as an anti-communist measure to ensure that Europe wouldn't turn red. I mean, right, but the it wasn't is, altruistic. So, I mean, it was. And understanding that we, our ideology was catering on the break of class. France was majority okay. communist, and it was mainly through the fact that the that, okay you know, majority yes, you you yourself have this theory that this, France. Let me majority. say this: I'm not saying that France would have just become communist, but let's be clear here: the communists had nearly unprecedented support. There was a real threat that France would become the Communist Party would entrench as a major force that could win elections, and the U.S. fought completely changed the game when they told moderate social democrats and liberals, as well as conservatives, that hey. If you, if France, if you stick with these guys, you're going to get unprecedented economic investment that you desperately need. And that certainly changed the game. And I think you'd have to be an idiot not to recognize that. So let's be clear here. The Marshall Plan was not altruistic. Expecting the U.S. to ever act altruistically or anything for that matter is naive. And I think that that's the main problem with your plan. You seem to build this on this naive assumption that we can fight racism and that we will not be biased and that somehow we'll actually use all the information we've had, even though policymakers have consistently failed to use the information that they're us. And I do wonder. How much we have to be at to even make your situation possible. Anyways, uh, I do recognize that the Marshall Plan was certainly not a, an altruistic measure, but I do submit that the U.S.'s uh, sphere of influence in that region would have been essentially ironclad 
partial flag or not. But <clears throat> due to, sim to the simple fact that they were militarily occupying it and Britain was a strong, staunch ally that could not live without American backing. Anyways, I, I recognize that I am fiatting significantly. I'm fiatting an educational campaign across the whole of America to essentially um, ameliorate the rampant racism and xenophobia we have had towards the entire Arab world for the next, for the last 20 years. I agree. I agree that <clears throat> significant studies required. I agree that I am fiatting a genuine political will on part of the American people and the American and their representatives in the American government to actually produce action for someone other than themselves. I know I mean, that's a massive assumption, but. Well, I would suggest that that is impossible because, you know, for one, Mr. Joe living in eastern Washington isn't the one making policy. It's the policymakers in Washington, and they will never be altruistic. Well, the assumption, every state oh, well. will act more or less because of real politics. They'll act in their own interests, and an intervention tainted by other interests can go south very fast. Therefore, I'll reiterate my position. The U.S. should only if there is a clear replacement in the rightful prince situation. Well, let, 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 let's, also, are you beyonding the removal of many of our oligarchic institutions so the politicians aren't bought anymore? I mean, because otherwise, there's no way of getting commercial interests. Like, well, you say... Well, well then let's engage, with, let's engage with the rightful prince in our because it has many of the similar features. One, it assumes, again, any of any scenario of intervention fundamentally assumes at least a degree of fiat I am asking for here. And... Rifle print scenario presents itself to many additional problems. One, the well, and I, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Rifle. Sorry. <clears throat> there, there are not there. One, but the problem is, does America agree with that rifle print? There have been many rifle print scenarios, especially in Iran, where we, essentially we had a perfect match for Harry scenario, where we. We were the ones fighting against that perfect prince, because that perfect prince was mildly socialist. What well, yeah, happens? And, what and, happens when your perfect prince, your uh, you know, maybe has a really abusive father who burned him on the right cheek or something, and he is suddenly convinced that the entire his entire campaign has been a mistake, and he will rule justly and fairly? Let's assume the perfect scenario. What if he runs counter to American interests? What happens then? And and uh, and let's not forget to intervene. What's your point? Oh, right, intervene against its own, intervene against its own interests. All I'm asserting is that the rifle prince scenario presents the same inherent fiat as my scenario. Well, except for the whole fighting all our oligarchic systems. Is that when if there is no rightful prince, the U.S. itself has to take on the burden of nation building, and well, who... in in that period, the U.S. begins inserting its own interests, and in inserting its own interests, that ends up derailing the nation. Hold on. Project. If you have Wait, a rightful no. prince, what it means this, is the rightful prince takes care of the nation prince. building because they have a popular mandate, and there you go. The assumption, the, that this, the assumption that this rightful prince will not be subject to the winds of American politics as his sole source of support is laughable. Oh. Well, well, no, no that's the whole the point. He won't. It's not his soul. The so prince so has a popular mandate, is what I mean. For example, going back to Panama, the opposition candidate won a landslide victory. Therefore, he had a popular support. He wasn't a U.S. client. 
he wasn't a U.S. puppet because his power didn't come from U.S. occupying troops. His power came. Are you seriously content? Are you seriously contending that Panama? Say we helped create, we stationed troops in for fifty years, and was functioning and is a puppet state of our. To make clear, for, I'm not referring 50 years. to the to the war of Panamanian independence. I'm referring to the um, I think it was 1989 convention, Operation Just Cause. And what I would submit is that we maintain significant influence in Panama as a result of that. Then, yes, I agree, and Operation Just Cause was somewhat limited in American influence in its conclusion with the popular mandate of the Panamanian people. But don't forget that, again, the U.S. maintained massive military bases there. We essentially we essentially retained control over the Panama Canal with preferential rights. And sure, we might have restored democratic government, but Panama was only mildly less a puppet state of ours. Well, I mean, the U.S. is always going to insert its interests, but the fact is, in Panama, the nation-building project, well, there wasn't really a nation-building because, you know, there was the popular mandate, it, a dictator was proposed, a pretty decent democracy is now in place, so... Well, and then there's, we need to confront two other scenarios. <laughs> and then we have to, con but even then, we have to contend with two other scenarios. One, the corrupted prince. What if your rightful prince, Assad, was treated as a rightful prince when he came to power? He was Western educated. He was, he, he had conversed with experts who all claimed him to be, you know, uh, very well spoken, a brave leader, certainly interested in democratic values. What if, what if Assad had been displaced and America restored him his place in Syria as the rightful prince? What if he pulls this? What if he oppresses his people just like he does now? How do you ensure that your rightful prince? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. And but that, not, that is also an, uh, an important thing. Is Panama another thing that differentiated Panama is it wasn't really a full dictatorship in that there were still institutions outside of Noriega, and that okay, so so now you're assuming that one there has to be a natural heir to the throne. Well, or to a whatever institution. One, you have to assume that there are strong remaining institutions in an autocratic government. Two, you're assuming that there is a rightful prince candidate who is actually committed to democratic values, despite unanimous support from the United States, who will defend him in essentially any conflict. That's, that's I would propose, a far larger fiat than no. my plan. Your well, fiat is literally to reverse all of U.S. public opinion in 20 years and also end no, all of no, no, no. So, I no, mean, no, no, no. yeah, no, Jason. I'm sorry, but Harry, clearly, Harry Wong has said I, oh, we should only intervene in this very specific scenario. Then you can argue that his interventionism is very limited in scope and therefore ignores, opportun uh, ignores areas where the U.S. might need to intervene. But to argue that he's beyonding more than you, who's advocating for a mass education campaign, has not well, been done. And a removal of corporate interest, at least from at least oh, on a certain God. level, from U.S. intervention, oh, at least on a certain level. Oh my God, Jason, you can't do, you can't have it both ways. Since American oh, policy is driven oh. by an oligarchy system in which the richest among us own our politicians, you can't have an altruistic oh, or any near like an altruistic intervention until then. So this whole hold on, you can't, hold on. What are you talking about, Jason? Hold on, I would present that again. Harry's solution has the exact. No, I don't want to hear. You know what? I don't want to hear about Harry's solution. You said that your solution 
would be you that quote unquote. We need a more altruistic right. solution. Where I'd is that love, coming from? How are you going I'd to unbuy the entire American political system? Fine. Let's again. What I'm what I'm saying is that no matter what intervention, there are there have been two scenarios of intervention proposed. What I'm saying is that they are all they are both equally unlikely, and I'm arguing for the benefits of mine over the other. We're we're both well, assuming fundamental changes. Where my situation has been filled, for example, as, bit, as I've said repeatedly, Panama, what? Uh, Granada, Again, I have, Haiti. Again, what I, I'm <laughs> saying, I'm not trying to fear anything. I'm just saying, if it falls outside of this, then we should intervene. Like, I know, Cambodia, don't bother. North Korea, right. Again, you know, bad idea. We should only Again. intervene in this very, very, very narrow situation. I'm not trying to fiat anything. I want to make clear to you that this is extremely narrow. And again, I would, I agree that your fiat is perhaps less broad than mine, I will admit. But what I would also submit is that, one, the interventions you have proposed are extremely small in scale. Panama, a nation with hardly more than a few hundred thousand people. Not a, a country with an extremely small population. Where the U.S. intervention was literally the troops numbered in the thousands. I mean, uh, for the record, Jason, though, there's like literally 4.1 million people in Panama, so it's not exactly a tiny country. Just, just for the record, I mean, sure. But what I'm saying is that these are very minor scale conflicts where the amount of military investment was small enough that there was no campaign necessary to get the American people on board because they could simply patch in what 5,000 troops and the job would be done. But, <clears throat> The scenario is different when it comes to other nations. What if there's a rightful prince in Iran? What are you going to do then? <clears throat> it, it comes with the same fundamental structure and the same fundamental problem with my plan of changing American public opinion. Because if there's a rightful prince in Iran, investment in American military assets will be far more than 5,000 men, a couple, <clears throat> a couple ships, that's America. It will have to be a full-scale or larger than Iraq, larger than anything we have seen since the days of perhaps the Vietnam War. And that oh, will be... There you go. And you can't... So you're proposing, one, several conditions beyond just rightful prince. One, there needs to be existing institutions for that rightful prince to take care of. Two, okay. we need to pick the... Two, we need to take... We need to pick the right rightful prince. And three, the nation has to be small enough that we can carry out an intervention without needing to consult public opinion. That, yes, limits you to, be the condition. That, that limits you to an exceedingly small amount of conditions. Yes, my, plan, however, my, pl my plan, however unlikely it is, will actually service the needs of people. Okay, that's it. I, I ask you, Jason. Will it, though? Can you name a consistent example of where the U.S. has basically... Can you... Where? Why should I believe that considering the most recent track record of the U.S. interventions in countries like Iraq, which are certainly much larger countries than Panama, why should I believe that the U.S. is going to use the right tools and build a country successfully. The yeah, again, this is again, this is where I have proposed my conditions. I propose that Harry's plan does not go far enough. His the amount of case, so you're going to intervene more. I understand that you're going to intervene more, Jason. That's not my question. My question is: so we're going to intervene more. Now we're going to intervene in Iran or wherever we're going to intervene. But my question is: why should I trust the U.S. to do the right thing consistently? At least with Harry's rightful prince situation, it's easy. And you can say, oh, the rightful prince has to make some bizarre concessions, trade agreements, etc. But at least 
there's an existing power structure that can be transferred. But I have to ask you, why are you putting so much faith in American nation building on such a massive scale? All right. I think we've really we've reached an impasse here with the nation building scenario. Both of us disagree strenuously. So let's move to a perhaps uh, more competitive arena, less competitive. Question of genocide, because genocide is different from the project of nation building. There, there is no time to prepare. There is no time to study. There is simply a mass killing of hundreds upon thousands of human beings occurring by the system. So what do we do about that? How can we stop that? I would like to defer to our special guest to perhaps lead a discussion on this topic. Okay. 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 So. Hear me out. Very well, simple. I should have, simple. You know what? I should have, should have introduced Ali as a policy expert from the Middle Eastern Institute. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's actually so, Ali. So, it's spelled like A-L-I. It's Ali. Uh, Ali, yeah. Spelled with a Y. Um, okay, here's, here's my solution. We intervene. Bam. Okay. There it is. We intervene. No um, more genocide. Okay, but how? <laughs> okay. Well, I think that raises an important question, Alex. I, I think generally we can get at least some agreement with that there should be some form of intervention. But let's look at U.S. intervention in genocides. For example, Yugoslavia. Did the airstrikes succeed in driving a leg genocide? No, they did not. In fact, it seems like the only way to stop a genocide is to support internal forces. Uh, because to simply, simply put, airstrikes don't stop genocide. What does? If we have to act quickly and with force, what kind of force? I'd actually like to provide a, a sort of different perspective um, in sort of the genocide that was happening in Guatemala during their civil war between 1960 to 1997. Uh, and in that, I believe the U.S. provided arms and troops. I, well, not troops, but they did provide firearms to the Guatemalan government. And what they were fighting in that particular situation was uh, a group called the guerrilleros and essentially what they were they were communist rebels who wanted to take over the government right uh however the guatemalan government was pretty bad and you could say that they were also committing genocide uh against mayan minorities in guatemala so in that case uh the, the U.S. government kind of was more or less stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I think not only does that go to show that a lot of these genocide situations can be really tough, but in terms of what the U.S. should do, I believe that they should... It, it's pretty much going to turn into the Cold, war, Cold, the Cold War all over again, where you're kind of picking your poison between a crappy government or a crappy rebel group in terms of who's going to stop who from killing each other. Right. 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 So I think Andrew, the, Andrew brings up a unique scenario here, the scenario of double genocide, in which both sides are committing horrific crimes against another. And I think we saw the same in the uh, Yugoslav crisis, in which tremendous brutality was shown by both sides. But then again, I would propose that the commonality among all of these scenarios is the existence of an oppressed ethnic. I propose that instead of any armed intervention, we send U.S. armed forces to solely to intervene and protect members of this ethnic group, transfer them to a safe site for the duration of the war, 
London. Yes. So, okay. So, let me, let me get this straight. But this okay. isn't an intervention. So, oh, sure. So, it's, regardless of what... Like, okay, so I'm trying to wrap my head around this. There's a genocide going on, right? Yes. This is this could be up to millions of people, right? Well, and you're just more. going to move them? Well, Where indeed. will they go, Jason? Yes, so, again, I'm. We're going to have this logistics debate again. But then again, I propose, so, no, I submit so, that. I think but, I think it's a fundamental. Obviously, we would all agree that genocide is bad, right? We we don't want that to happen. To a certain degree, if if the only option. Is to, is to intervene with armed forces, then that must be taken. I think, of course, that isn't the first course of action. Diplomacy is always first. I think all of us would always agree that we should always attempt, at least attempt diplomacy before we send in our troops. Obviously, at least in my, in my eyes, it's, I see it very hard to you know, just move an entire ethnic minority. I think that's how it, really how it works. Oh, I know, you, but you, you, like, you get another point. What you need to do Again. is if, if, if this government is, is doing a state-run ethnic genocide, again, then, 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 then the state needs to be toppled. That, that, well, that's again, that's not, that's not necessarily my proposal. Sure, I'm obviously a perfect and would be the remove, complete removal of an entire ethnic minority force to a safe location before relocating them back, but that's, I submit, Impossible. Close to impossible. But what I'm saying is that whatever life we can rescue from the ravages of war and certain death would be a, a no matter how many millions we spend, rescue of a single life would make the entire operation worth it. I submit that, look, it would be nearly impossible to evacuate the nearly 2 million uh, Muslim <clears throat> Bosnians from Yugoslavia. But U.S. has shown again and again an enormous capacity to airlift massive amounts of human beings from an active from active war zones. I, d- I doubt that there would be any U.S. public opposition to an airlift to literally save people from certain death, no matter how much they may hate the Arabs. No, we're all, but, oh, oh, right. That's of course you know save lives when you can, but you know the big question where you're going to put them. But that's a different point. It's the fact that. You know, it's not just about the people being removed. It's also about the government who's doing that. It also needs to go. So yes, of course, so, the people while you the problem is, but the problem is, in order to stop the government, we would first need to intervene in the massive civil war that well, is ongoing. This intervening because I fail to see how the U.S. is not going to enter into any armed conflict when they are sauntering into this war zone and removing massive people. <laughs> Yes. Me rolling up in my again. tanks and black and Apache helicopters to just evacuate civilians. Again, no, what I'm saying, we're, 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 I'm... we're snaking back to our original points all over again. Uh, what I'm saying is that yes, there will obviously have to be U.S. armed guards in order to protect us, but the the guards will be impartial. They will their sole purpose is to protect. Yeah, us. yeah, yeah. Like the UN peacekeepers who moved into Bosnia and very effectively protected oh, protected yeah, the Bosnians. Dutch peacekeepers at Srebrenica. Yeah, I remember when they. Remember when he was pressured into promising protection, then abandoned them, but still got shot at by the Serbian army? That's a great example of how peacekeepers will be effective. Right. There obviously has to be a will to actually protect the people. The UN peacekeeping force were clearly showed an ex- 
and exercising cowardice, but yes. That is a sort of I mean, in a past example, but same thing in Rwanda. In Rwanda too, we see an example of where oh, the UN says we're pulling the peacekeepers out and they abandon them. Yeah, oh, they just oh, abandon them. So right, because, this whole idea because because the UN is fundamentally a cowardly organization. Yeah, but, it is. But who's going to be organizing this airlift? I mean, the US and the UN. I mean, I don't know. Well, I feel like let's you, be fair here. You're going to be on an active the UN. The UN investment in Rwanda was incredibly non-committal, even for the standards of the UN. The UN has demonstrated capacity in the past with Tibetan refugees and and, and, and the refugees across the world that it has at least a certain degree of capability. Rwanda was not necessarily a demonstration of the US complete incompetence. It's a demonstration of the UN just not caring. Why would they care? Why are they caring now? How can you guarantee to me that they will care? Can I guarantee you that they will care? No, but I submit no. that we. But but I submit that no matter how much money we spend, the very say the rescue of one life is worth the entire operation. Right, but I would say wouldn't wouldn't I? I can make the argument that if we're just saying saving the maximum lives, shouldn't we just intervene and toss out the government and like create a military a U.S. occupied zone where this population can be protected? Because then we can save far more lives than an airlift. I mean, right. from the, from and, by your moral framework, then, that's what should be and done. Then, and then you would eventually, and then you would simply bring the U.S. into a war in which the American public is clearly not committed. No to, matter the means, cost, even if we could just save one life, it would be worth it. Hold on, but a, a full military intervention would only drag out the conflict, especially if the U.S. is not completely prepared to organize a World War II-style overwhelming of the front. Well, the fact but, is, I think what you're arm, proposing, Jason, is impossible. Either it turns into Rwanda, where or Srebrenica, where the UN sits around and just does nothing, or it, they will, uh, peacekeepers will inevitably have to assert themselves and inevitably, inevitably it will turn into a full-on intervention. You can't. Well, that's not necessarily the case. If, if it intervenes against both sides, then that's not that's arguably not taking <clears throat> a side in the war. It's simply there, a small-scale skirmishes, perhaps, between troops. But, but there will be no need for a massive investment in, of troops in dragging out the war for potentially five to ten years. It could turn into another Vietnam. Or we could just abandon millions of people to die because we airlifted, you know, I don't know, a quarter of the population out and left the rest to die. Right. Or we could, or we could submit our, or we could sum, subject the people to a <clears throat> Afghanistan scenario where we eventually have to pull out because the American people demand it. And the entire area falls to the Taliban. And how is this? Uh, how is this any better? Where U.S. troops are and U.N. peacekeepers are constantly under attack, but because of your desire to avoid a full intervention, armed intervention will eventually doom everybody. This rescue plan will save some. They're go we don't know where they're going, and millions will die because we abandoned them. But. But it will theoretically we, be more stable. If we intervene, we only destabilize the region. We only cause if we don't intervene, then millions oh, die, okay. Jason. Dumb I will trade future instability for the future of an entire group of people. I don't know how this is so hard for people to understand. The question is, but if I, the Kur if Turkey starts slaughtering its Kurdish population and you airlift a million out, there are still, what, 14.3 to 20 million Kurds in there? Do you just abandon them? Here, Are they let's just dying? Let's yeah, let's yeah. use 
let's use the example of Afghanistan. Let's use the example of Afghanistan I brought up earlier. We intervened and then we left. And then the Taliban went out and systematically slaughtered everybody. In almost the entire minority Muslim sect population of Afghanistan. That's what's going to happen. So your solution is to do nothing. To sit around and just accept nothing. that millions of nothing. It will save yes, as nothing. If we you can't if we you can't act if you we, can't have your moral framework be no matter the cost, you have to save lives. But also we, we'll just abandon we'll just abandon millions we, to die because I don't want to face the cost down the line. If we do nothing, millions die. If we intervene, millions more die. If we intervene with a focus on protecting ethnic minorities, we can save some and overall it's the least amount of casualties. All right, closing In statements. F- Come on, guys. Okay, I think we have reached an impasse. In no, certainly. <laughs> certainly. An impasse. So, so let's offer our closing statements. Everybody, call. Okay. Well, I would submit that the U.S. in terms of regime change as a scenario with a proposed established autocratic government that is in, that has oppressed its people, I would submit that the U.S has the ability, and in some cases, the duty to intervene with the condition that it has, first, to study fully the conditions of the area, two, to conduct an information campaign, regardless of whether there is a conflict or not, in the United States of itself, to raise popular support for and popular awareness and attention of issues in the Middle East, or any other, or in any other region, and of the suffering of the people, and deny the two decades-long propaganda effort we have used uh, <clears throat> to essentially demonize millions of people. That is the only way we can achieve a successful intervention and establish a democratic government where an autocracy existed before and bring liberty and freedom to millions potentially. It is. The only scenario that is both wide in scope and potentially pandemic. You want to give a quick statement on genocide, just like to re-establish your position. Sure. Additionally, um, when it comes to the scenario of genocide, I propose a dedicated effort to relocate as many members of an of a minority currently under threat of imminent genocide. As soon as possible to a safe location, whether it be military bases or a friendly allied country. The U.S. and other national bodies have clearly shown their ability in the past to do so. And yes, I submit that the U.N. has considerable flaws. But when it has the will, the U.N. can achieve significant amounts. And any armed intervention will only throw oil upon the fire. All right, Ollie, if you need to go soon, you can try. Ollie, go. Um, let's see here. I've never done a closing statement before, but I guess I'll just... Make just give your two positions. Yeah. I'll make it brief. That The main point is, is that there are very few situations where it is necessary to intervene. And one of the most prominent is, of course, a genocide. And any, any government that takes place in genocide it it must be toppled at all costs and even if that means 
with a uh, armed forces intervention. Let's see here. What was, what was the other argument? That was a genocide point. And the other thing was, oh yeah, um, intervention in general, one size doesn't fit all, in my opinion. So it's too hard to say we need, we need this and this and that before we intervene. It really is a case-by-case -case situation. Our interventionism, <clears throat> interventionism is a poison scalpel. If you do the surgery quick and fast and remove the tumor, you'll be fine. But the longer the scalpel stays in there, the more likely the, patient, the entire patient is going to die. Therefore, interventionism must be scrutinized under several very strict standards. The first and most important standard is the bright footprints. There is a clear replacement who has a popular mandate. Uh, the nation is relatively small, so the military intervention won't take too long. And there are, to some degree, some institutions that can, uh, that can help the leader along with nation building. When it comes to the issue of genocide, you, you only have two choices. Either do not intervene at all or full military intervention. Anything in the middle is not politically feasible. If you're in the middle, what it means is small-scale skirmishes, which essentially means allowing the enemy to attack you while having your own hands tied behind your back and allowing the genocide to continue in part. Neither of these are politically acceptable in any way. A limited intervention is impossible. You either have to choose to not intervene at all or go all in. We here in developed countries, and especially in the United States, which is the preeminent superpower of the world and has been that for decades now, like to believe that we have, that because we have so much power, so much influence, we can solve the world's problems. But the deepest, darkest truth that most of us have refused to face is that we're very bad at nation building to the point where it takes an overwhelming, uh, it takes an extremely positive situation for the U.S. to affect any kind of positive change. We are bad at nation building, and so it's pretty much incumbent on us not to do it. The truth is that, as Harry said, it's a poison scalpel. And I would go further to say that US, the U.S. attempts to apply its values and its society onto countries where that just does not apply. Countries where there are different demographics, different economic situations, different histories, and it refuses to accept nuance. So the truth is that the U.S. sees itself as a rising tide bringing democracy, but all it does is bring a free market and if the free market comes in the form of a dictator, so be it. So I don't trust the U.S. to, be, to do any form of intervention, except in the case where there's a very obvious situation and you can strike while the iron is hot. Because the dark truth is that if you give the U.S. time to build its own nation, it's not going to build a stable democracy. It really never has. Short of all-out military occupation over the span of decades and unbelievable sums of money being poured in the nation, we haven't had any success in nation building. And so with that in mind, I would argue that without the considerable fiat proposed by Jason, there's no possible positive outcome of U.S. intervention. Moreover, I would argue that even with Jason's considerable fiat, he refuses to acknowledge the fact that the U.S. is owned by corporate interests and that any U.S. intervention would hey, be a corporate hey. intervention. Hey, hold the, on. I thought this, you're not supposed to be arguing the closing statement. That's my point. This is my point. You cannot trust the U.S. because the U.S. has been transformed into an oligarchic or more accurately a plutocratic state. So I will never trust a plutocracy to instill democracy in other nations. On the case of genocide, however, for all the flaws of the U.S., and there may be many, you are either, when you have the power that the U.S. holds, you are either fighting it or you are complicit. 
And the truth is that any happiness, any belief that you can do anything but the most you can do to end the, the attempt to create the extinction of a people is morally reprehensible. I understand that there are a lot of long-term consequences, but I'm appalled by certain ideas that we need to preserve. We might need to allow a genocide to continue partially in the name of long-term stability. I state myself, I put myself unequivocally in the position that genocide must be stopped at all costs. And that includes an armed intervention, so be it. Uh, thank you all so much for listening today here on Swing Boat. You can catch all of our podcasts on both Apple Music, Spotify, and anywhere that posts podcasts. Um, if you would love to join us on every couple of Fridays or whenever you have time to listen to us, we'd very much enjoy it. We love making this for y'all. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Have a good day.